Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the most important claims made by John Stuart Mill in his work on liberty, in, in chapter two in particular, is that we shouldn't be in the business of silencing opinions, but rather ought to allow those opinions to be expressed, even if we think that they're false. And his argument isn't simply based on the right of everybody to free expression. As a matter of fact, earlier in the work in chapter one, he said, I'm not gonna worry about absolute abstract principles of right. I'm going to look at utility, at what's actually useful, what's beneficial to the community as a whole and to the members who are parts of that community. And another thing that fits in with that too, in Mill's conception, is the usefulness of allowing this for the development of human beings, for human beings to realize the potentiality in the kinds of beings that they are, that is rational beings. And so he tells us that we shouldn't silence opinions, whether they're true or false, for a number of different reasons. He says that the peculiar evil of silencing the expression of an opinion is that it is robbing the human race. And then he makes a couple points here. Posterity, as well as the existing generation, those who dissent from the opinion still more than those who hold it. So notice, again, he's not saying, well, everybody should be able to express themselves and you're violating their right by not allowing them to express themselves. He's saying it's actually bad for everybody at this point in time and later on if you don't allow the opinion to be expressed. So this is a much wider range. Past, or rather present and future, although we could also talk about people in the past, although a utilitarian isn't going to view that, but we could talk about certain you know, relations to them, the capacity to bring their ideas back to light. And now notice this, those who dissent from the opinion, the people who are arguing against it, as well as those who hold it, those who dissent from an opinion are in some way harmed by the suppression or silencing of that opinion. And that's, you know, in a way, kind of a paradoxical thing to say because they're the ones who want to shut everybody up, right? So why would they want to do something that actually goes against their interests? Well, he goes on and he says, if the opinion is right, what happens? They're deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. And you might say, well, you know, they're less interested in that and they're more interested in, in other things. The reason why they want people to shut up about this thing over here is because they have some emotional attachment to it. And Mill can say, yeah, perfectly fine. But he does think that everybody is in fact benefited by learning what the truth is and harmed by being deprived of it, even if they have an emotional attachment to some sort of falsehood that they, you know, perhaps grew up with or it works to their interests or, or anything along those lines. It silences the, the voices in their head, raising objections. The other thing he says, okay, so the opinion could be right, in which case you're silencing it and you're being deprived of truth. It could also be false. And you might say, well, then that's great. Shut up the falsehoods. And Mill says, no, that's actually not good for you. Why not? 
because in the clash of opinions, the truth of what is true becomes more clear, becomes more vivid. And we are also able to know it as true and not merely something that we accepted on faith or on the basis of having grown up in this place rather than another. He's got a great example a little bit later on where he says that the same causes which make a person a churchman in London would have made him a Buddhist or a Confucian in Peking, right? People grow up in a certain place and they just sort of accept that, that set of ideas. Mill wants to combat that. He thinks that's a bad thing. So he says that one of the main problems with this is what he calls an assumption of infallibility. Infallibility means the inability to make a mistake, the inability to go astray. And there aren't actually that many, for example, religious communities that claim complete infallibility. People often bring up papal infallibility. That's actually a pretty narrow, restricted doctrine. The Pope says ham sandwiches are better than pastrami on rye. Well, you know, that's not within the province. That, that doesn't fall within infallibility. There is also a certain kind of infallibility that's accorded, for example, within the, the Muslim world to decisions by certain people. But it's, it's actually, you know, there's often the capacity to say, no, 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 I think this is wrong. Infallibility in religious contexts usually ends up being invoked as sort of a, okay, we've got a controversy, somebody's going to make a decision. But in, in, within the wider world, which includes religious people, but also secular people, lots of people behave as if they are actually infallible or the people that they listen to are infallible. And Mill says, well, really nobody's infallible. There's no good reason to think that anybody is. If you wanted them to be infallible, that would itself would have to be based on an opinion that had to be backed by arguments and claims and stuff like that. So he says that... An opinion which is attempted to suppress by authority may possibly be true. How do we know whether it's true or not? That's going to come up a little bit later. It says, those who desire to suppress it deny its truth, but they are not infallible. They have no authority to decide the question for all mankind and exclude every other person from the means of judging. When a person is behaving as if they are infallible, that's in effect what they're doing. They're saying, I decide, everyone else, shut up, we're done here, go home and believe what it is that, that I've decided is true. So he says that to refuse a hearing to an opinion because a person is sure that it's false is to assume that one's own certainty is the same thing as absolute certainty. And Mill goes a little bit further than this and says, all silencing of discussion is an assumption of infallibility. Whether a person has the concept of infallibility in their mind or not, they are behaving in such a way as to assume, as to project infallibility. And Mill thinks that this is a, you know, very problematic. Why? Well, he gives several arguments here. He says, unfortunately for the good sense of mankind, the fact of their fallibility is far from carrying the weight in their practical judgment, which is always allowed to it in theory. Everyone knows himself to be fallible. Few think it necessary to take any precautions against their own fallibility or admit that the supposition that any opinion of which they feel very certain may be an example of the error to which they acknowledge themselves as liable. This applies to everybody. Everybody, according to Mill, tends to have this 
capacity for going from, you know, uh, saying, ah, I could be wrong about this, to thinking, no, I can't be wrong about this. He also points out that people in power who are somewhat insulated from dissent, this is going to be a bigger problem for them. So he talks about absolute princes or others who are accustomed to unlimited deference. We might think of, you know, CEOs within companies who make terribly stupid decisions and ruin the company because nobody around them is actually telling them, hey, that's a bad decision. Your opinions are wrong. Or when they do, they get fired, right? He says people who are more happily situated, who sometimes do hear their opinions disputed and are not wholly unused to be set right when they're wrong, place the same unbounded reliance only on such of their opinions as are shared by all who surround them or to whom they habitually defer. So, so quite a few people will say, well, I, I could be wrong about this. I will entertain other possibilities, but I'm only going to listen to people that I, I actually like or already agree with. And so, you know, that's not going to be particularly helpful either. Why is this a problem? Well, Mill says that the freedom to contradict opinions is something that we really need. He says, complete liberty of contradicting and disproving our opinion is the very condition which justifies us in assuming its truth. So this can apply to matters of action, as he's talking about in that passage, or this could apply to theoretical matters as well. When we decide to behave in a way that projects or assumes infallibility on our part or on the part of a community to which we belong, then silencing opinions, what we're doing is removing from ourselves the very capacity to see if we've got things wrong. Could be that an opinion that we're suppressing is actually the truth and we wouldn't know it because we've silenced the people who are expressing it or, you know, burn the books that it is expressed in or shut down the websites or however we want to frame it. Now, he also talks about matters of action. And he uses some vocabulary that probably requires a little bit of explanation. In the early modern period, all the way into, say, the early 20th century, people would talk about moral certainty as opposed to, say, theoretical certainty or certainty per se. Moral certainty is this idea of, well, we, we don't really know practical matters 100%, but we can, we can base on probabilities. We can say, I've done my due diligence. I do, in fact, understand what it is that I'm saying here. So he says that, you know, for example, there is no such thing as absolute certainty, but there is assurance sufficient for the purposes of human life. We may and must assume our own opinion to be true for the guidance of our own conduct. And it's assuming no more when we forbid bad men to pervert society by the propagation of opinions, which we regard as false and pernicious. And Mill says, well, this isn't actually going to get you what it is that you're looking for here. And he, he talks a little bit later about shifting the ground here from focusing on truth to the importance of a doctrine to society. So, you know, what would be some examples of this? He does provide some, some examples of his own time, but I think it's better if we look at contemporary examples. Think about all the things that are matters of controversy where people have wanted to say, you, you can't bring that into the discussion. So, you know, Mill would be pretty open when it comes to this. 
One prime example would be, should you actually allow self-avowed Nazis into discourse or should you, you know, kick them out or punch them in the nose or things like that? Mill would say, you got to let them in so that people can actually see how horrific they, the, you know, the consequences of what they're proposing would be. We could also think about, we don't have to go to, you know, such extreme cases. We could think about things like legalization of drugs, something that after, you know, several generations here in the United States of the war on drugs, people have some very, very strong opinions about, often not particularly based in research, but quite often based in popular culture and propaganda. Mill would say, well, you pro-drug people, pro-legalization people, you need to actually listen to, even if you think that it's complete nonsense, you need to listen to the, the stuff that other people bring in. And likewise, you anti-drug crusaders, you need to, to listen to what it is that other people bring in as well. And by doing that, they'll, you know, it's not going to be a sort of like, well, everybody's got their own opinion kind of relativism. The stuff that's garbage will show itself as garbage and people will be able to turn against it. It's a, you know, kind of an optimistic view of things, but it is Mill's consistent point of view. He also makes a really important point. When we're shifting the ground here, we are actually shifting to the, another criterion of usefulness, the usefulness of opinion to society, right? And he says that the usefulness of the opinion to society of say, you know, we shouldn't allow people to do X. That's also a matter of opinion. So that also can be brought in for questioning. That can't be set up as, as sort of an impregnable, unassailable axiom that we all must buy into. So that actually covers a lot of ground. Another thing that he talks about going back a little bit into the, the chapter is this future of human beings. And I mentioned earlier at the start that Mill thinks that being deprived of the truth and the opportunity to consider the truth is really a harm to human beings because it impedes their development. So he, he does have a rather strong conception of human nature. We have certain faculties, intellectual, moral, aesthetic, and those elevate us above the animals and we shouldn't reduce ourselves down to that, being deprived of the capacity to fully develop these. And how do we fully develop these? Well, it's in large part by the progress that gets made in considering opinions and then saying, well, these are actually true, or we think these are true for the time being, and these are false. We're going to reject these. So he says, when we consider either the history of opinion or the ordinary conduct of human life, to what is to be ascribed that the one and the other are no worse than they are? Isn't that an interesting way of asking the question? Why are we not more screwed up than we currently are? And he says, it's not the inherent force of the human understanding. Why? It's not just that we're rational beings or intellectual beings. He says, on any matter, not self-evident. What are matters that are self-evident? The whole is greater than, the, than any one of its parts. Two plus two equals four, right? If you really want to contest those, you're probably just being perverse or you're using language in weird ways, right? Once we get past that domain, 
Everything's sort of up for grabs. And he says, on any matter not self-evident, there are 99 persons totally incapable of judging it for one who is capable. And the capacity of the hundredth person is only comparative. The majority of the eminent men of every past generation held many opinions now known to be erroneous and did or approved numerous things which no one will now justify. It's kind of funny because we usually, when, from the vantage point of the present, we're like, oh, you know, those people in the early 20th century and the 19th century, oh my gosh, look at how stupid they were. Can only say that when we actually don't know much about the history of ideas in that time. But he's, he's saying, listen, previous generation from us, they had a lot of crazy ideas about things and now those have been disproved. There has been some progress. How does that happen? He says, why is it there is on the whole a preponderance among mankind of rational opinions and rational conduct? How did we get to this point where we're actually pretty well off? He says, it's owing to a quality of the human mind, namely that errors are corrigible. They can be corrected. Human beings are capable of rectifying their mistakes by discussion and experience. Kind of a nice idea there, isn't it? He points out something that's really important. He says, not by experience alone. There must be discussion to show how experience is interpreted. And then he points out, there's a great line, wrong opinions and practices gradually, not right away, yield to fact and argument. But facts and arguments to produce any effect on the mind must be brought before it. Very few facts are able to tell their own stories without comments to bring out their meaning. The whole strength and value then of human judgment, depending on the one property, that it can be set right when it is wrong. Reliance can be placed on it only when the means of settling it right are kept constantly at hand. What does that mean for us? Unless there's free discussion, this apparatus, this sort of, you know, cause effect thing about realizing things are wrong, it's not going to happen. In order for the human being to actually arrive at true judgments, they have to be able to sift through multiple points of view and those multiple points of view must be allowed to make their case. So that is why silencing opinions is really a bad idea. Mill is producing quite a robust argument here. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.